hairs on my body started standing on end. Silent. Nothing there. I fought to get back into my body. You are going to be a vital importance of helping us convince the masses. Type 471. Type 471. Bridge to the other world. Bridge to the other world. Welcome to Type 471. I'm Sam Kitchen. Today, my guest is Todd Neese. He is the founder and head honcho of the American Primate Conservancy. He's been active in the Bigfoot area for about 30 years, coming up on 30 years. He is based out of Oregon, but he he's all over the place. Anywhere where Bigfoot activity is going on, he's investigating it. So, I mean, Todd Neese is the guy to talk to about Bigfoot, and I'm really excited to talk to Todd today. Todd Neese, welcome to Type 471. How are you? I'm doing well, Sam. Thanks for having me. Good. I'm glad to hear it, and I'm very glad to have you. So I understand that this all started with a very profound experience in the early 90s. Yes, uh, actually 1993 to be exact, uh, April 3rd. Um, I was uh, introduced to Bigfoot in a, uh, well, very interesting initiation, if you will. To start off with, I honestly, at that point in my life, I was 34. I wasn't all that interested in in the subject of Bigfoot. Um, of course, growing up in the Pacific Northwest, you can't help but hear about the stories, but I'd pretty much relegated it to just a good old campfire story. Well, that uh, came to an abrupt halt that day. I was a combat engineer um, in the Oregon Army National Guard, a sergeant at the time, and we, if just for your listeners' uh, edification, the uh, a lot of what we do as combat engineers involves the use of high explosives, composition for uh, modium nitrate, dynamite, that kind of fun stuff. And uh, so, on this particular day, uh, it was actually a pretty nice day for April in the coast range. Being a temperate rainforest, uh, we got lucky, had a beautiful, bright, sunny day. And and uh, our job that on that day, we had three different uh, blasting sites that we were training at. And these were gravel quarries on some private timberland. We had some uh, uh, special permission to get in there and, and utilize those quarries. Uh, so we... That particular day, we the, the first site was uh, cutting charges. We had sliced steel I-beams in half with uh, C4, plastic explosives. Um, the second site, they had set up a mock uh, minefield with anti-tank mines, and our job at that site was to create a, a lane, if you will, uh, in order to make it passable. And the third and final site was a cratering charge. Uh, Cratering charge would be used in this particular scenario to blow a road in half and and deny the enemy the use of that road. And in this case, we used about, I don't know, 250 pounds of ammonium nitrate we'd been soaking in diesel fuel. So very large explosion. 
all of them were uh, very large explosions. These sound very impressive. Yeah. I mean, we had a blasting pit there uh, at the base, but the quantity of explosives we were using that day would have probably broke every window on the base. So so they would have us go up uh, once a year to this particular spot and do our exercises. We had lit the, the fuses on the final explosion for the day. And of course, SOPs, you know, we get in our vehicles and we convoy out of there and wait for the explosion at a safe location and uh, and then go back and check our work. As we got in the vehicles, I was a passenger in the second Humvee. There were two Humvees up front, a troop transport in the middle and the commander's Humvee bringing up the rear. But I sat behind the driver, and because it was such a nice day, I, I had the window down, and, and uh, I had the opportunity to glance around the, the countryside as we descended the hill. And having been a hunter for both deer and elk in that actual area in the past, it was that's kind of what I was doing. I was just looking for, for wildlife. Well, I found it. When we rounded this, this uh, corner, the second blast site came into full view. And what struck me was these three dark figures standing right out in the middle of this gravel quarry. And I, at first I'm like, you know, what the heck are those people doing down there? It, it, it hardly got the thought out of my head as I, as I'm looking at it, it's like, these, those aren't people. Um, they, yeah, they were standing on two legs and if you can picture the three of them standing side by side and they were actually watching our convoy as we descended uh, across this ravine. But what got me was, I mean, like they were huge. I mean, jet black, no sign of any clothing whatsoever on them. Um, the arms were way too long. Um, I mean, reaching all the way down to their knees. Um, and the legs were disproportionate to to that of a human as well. Um, they were all just built like bodybuilders. I mean, this this these this four foot wide shoulders at least, um, barrel chested. You can you can literally see the taper down from the chest to the waist. And uh, I mean, I'd love to have them on our Seahawk team. <laughs> uh, I think the three of them could probably hold the line on I... their own, but. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it was this activity that they were engaged in that, that really caught my attention. Uh, the tallest of the three stood in the middle and stood there like a statue. But the two that were flanking it on its left and right were exhibiting this uh, swaying motion, if you will, that like, like they were rocking from side to side, you know, shifting weight from one foot to the other. And in the process, these long pendulous arms are swinging uh, in front of their knees. Uh, and they did this the entire time I watched them. It was really, really peculiar activity. Um, something I would come to find to be quite common with these, uh, these uh, creatures. Um, and why, I don't know. Um, I, I've I've heard in talking with a primatologist that that's fairly common with primates when they feel anxious or nervous. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, and I say it, I did it the entire time. I'm not talking some three or five second something ran in front of my car kind of a, of a sighting. I watched them for a full 25 seconds. So it was, it was a fairly long um, view, uh, uh, encounter. Uh, yeah. As encounters go. You certainly got a good look at them. And uh, from, from what I, it seems to me that the swaying back and forth is usually often seen or is often seen in association with tree peeking. Like they're sitting, they're standing behind a tree and they're, they're kind of rocking back and forth, kind of peeking a little bit and rocking back behind the tree. Just, just so I understand how visible were they, how obscured or not obscured were they? Well, if you could imagine the, the quarries were made of, of basalt, um, and basalt is kind of a, a light gray, almost like a concrete gray. Um, had they been standing, say, in front of some trees, I probably wouldn't have seen them. But standing out in the open, right out in the open in this gravel quarry with that light gray rock behind them, and them being jet black, the, the contrast was, was striking. Um, so, yeah, there, there was no question what I was looking at, and, and I just, you know, I was just kind of in shock the entire time I'm watching them. I can imagine. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, seeing something that isn't supposed to be um, is uh, very traumatic. Um, yeah. So it got kind of interesting after that. Once we lost sight of them, I just kind of slumped back in my seat and was, you know, my as you can imagine, my head is just swimming with a thousand questions. And I just, I'm just trying to make sense of it all. And it wasn't very long that we arrived at this staging area. And uh, I just instinctively got out of the, the Humvee and started jogging back up in the direction we just come. I, I wanted so badly to, to, to see them again. But I got as far as I dared. We had a policy that, you know, when we're doing something as dangerous as this, that everybody has to be accounted for. So I, I went as far as I dared. And unfortunately, there was a little bit of a, a, a berm, if you will, blocking my view of the of the quarry. Uh, but as I stood there with my hand on my forehead, standing on my tiptoes, just trying to do whatever I could to, to see them, I, I heard somebody call out my name. And I look over to my right, and here comes Sergeant Martin. And he was noticing what I was doing, and he said, hey, what are you looking at? And I dropped my hand on my side, and I looked at him. I said, no, nothing. Well, Jeff proceeded to come my direction, and once he got to where I was at, uh, he looked me right in the eyes, and he said, I don't suppose you saw what I saw down at that second blast site. And being the great, brave guy that I am, I said, I don't know, Jeff, what did you see? Uh, you know. Yeah. And um, he took a drag off his cigarette and looked left and right to make sure nobody else was in your sight. And he said, I saw three huge pair covered uh, Bigfoot, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and I, of course, at that, I said, yeah, I just saw him too. You know, and it was great. I mean, to have that corroboration, not really that I needed it. It's just I was happy that somebody else experienced what what i had and uh it, it would be the following month uh that we would get together again for training and and we had 
two more soldiers come forward uh, independent of each other and 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 also claim to have seen what Jeff and I had experienced. So it's it's an unusual sighting um, in that, you know, multiple animal sightings are fairly rare. Um, multiple eyewitnesses um, are pretty rare as well. And then, of course, just the the nature of what we were doing out there. I mean, we were, we were blowing up the forest, you know, <laughs> putting up mushroom clouds like 2,500 to 3,000 feet in the air. These were big booms. And that's what, I mean, what really struck me was, you know, that took a, quite a bit of bravery for them to enter that quarry after what had just taken place perhaps less than an hour earlier. Yeah, you'd expect most animals to go, you know, 360 degrees away from that area. And yet these things uh, were curious. And uh, and that that's what really strikes me, you know, is that curiosity is a it's a form of, of intelligence i mean it, it's the need to know what what took place and to be able to be able to overcome that uh, with innate fear you'd expect uh, i mean that sense of curiosity they had was uh, powerful enough to to make them come on in and 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 check us out i am kind of i'm i'm curious about all of that and how it happened and how much of it you can kind of, because you were there, I wasn't. I, I mean, I'm listening to your description, but I don't know the layout of everything, et cetera. So how likely is it that they must have come in after the blast? And, and what are the possibilities that maybe they had already been somewhere in this area and, and were like trying to flee at that time? I mean, uh, what, what, are, what, what are the likelihoods there? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Sam, because in in hindsight, uh, while we were at that site where where they ended up appearing, we were we had two squads. I was a squad leader. I had my my squad, and I was directing them as to how to run this um, uh, debt cord and and clip in clip into the debt uh, what we call a ring main. Uh, clip on the, their blocks of C4 to place them next to the mines. That, so we're all kind of, you know, hunkered down, focusing on what we're doing. And I distinctly recall hearing a very loud whoop kind of sound. And, I, you know, when we're doing this, we have to train as we would in actual battle. And that requires noise discipline as well as light discipline and and and, and so on. So I, I, when I heard this silly whoop sound, I've I've looked up. I was gonna try to you know find out who did that and you know discipline them about about that. But I looked up and everybody was still busy doing what they were doing. And and in it, in a sense, it sounded like it was coming from further back in the woods. So your point is is. Interesting because I just think in hindsight they had to have been fairly close to that explosion if in fact that's what created that noise and I don't know what else could have and I've I've heard that type of vocalization since on many occasions and so I do think they were not far away from it right and then and then all of a sudden their home is you know blowing up and they have to go check out and see what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's, it would have been like a, a small earthquake there for a, for a moment, and and uh, of course, a lot of uh, 
rock and, and shrapnel raining down all around the forest. So it's it's very possible they, they were not far off. Right. That that kind of sounds probable to me. And it's actually making me wonder. I mean, because you, you were you were you had the opportunity to be at ground zero to see how they reacted to what was happening uh in in their midst. But, uh, like it, it makes me wonder how they might react to wildfire. I mean, we know, we, we know how that, that they're obviously very impacted by wildfire, but like the behavior as they see disaster coming, this, I think this has the, the potential to kind of give us a little bit of insight into their behavior when they see trouble afoot. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, so, some kind of a threat. So I think whereas most animals run in the opposite direction, like you were saying, a Sasquatch behaves very differently. And, and it's, it's, it's just making me wonder how they respond to any number of disasters, essentially. Well, I mean, surely they've dealt with forest fires in the past. I mean, much of it's caused by nature anyway. So um, I, I think in this particular situation, these three were acting as sort of a a lookout, if you will, for, for others that may have been in the area. Sure. Um, but again, I, the, the only thing I could equate it to just as a, um, an example is say you're, you're sitting on your porch at home, uh, you know, nice sunny day, you're just relaxing. And then suddenly uh, out of the blue, literally comes a, a a jet airliner, and it and it say it crashes three or four blocks away from your house. You know, it, there's an explosion, there's this fire and smoke, and the ground will shake. And 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 I, sure, you're going to be in shock for uh, several moments. But I think in the long run, within you know. 10 or 15 minutes, you're going to be drawn to the, the disaster site, if not to uh, see if you can help in any way or, or just morbid curiosity. You'd, you'd, you would be able to get over it as long as you knew there wasn't, you know, more coming. And I think that's kind of what happened. Uh, they had a, a, this disaster, if you will, happening right in their neighborhood, and, and they, out of curiosity, came to check it out. Right. And they sent yeah. out the first responders. Yeah, there you go. I like that. <laughs> yeah. There was something else about uh, what you mentioned that, that, that I'm just curious about it, and I don't have any data uh, you know, pertaining to this, but it just seems to me that when three or more are spotted, the tallest one is usually right in the middle. Have you, does that seem to be the case with you? Like, like in, in all the reports you've come across over the years, when three or more are spotted, does it seem to you that the tallest one is most often in the middle? Well, I, I can't say for certain. I, I, I do think though that that one in the middle exhibited exactly, um, the proper behavior that that we see it quite often with these things is they just stand still it's one of it's one of their their um talents if you will um uh, in avoiding being seen and if they do stand still they're they're very hard to see it and perhaps these two being a little bit shorter might have been more adolescent if you will and maybe less disciplined than that that one in the middle um but that that one in the middle just it just stood there just like like i said like a statue and 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 for whatever reason these other two just 
overreacted perhaps, but uh, that's just my take on it. I, I think uh, curiosity is really their Achilles heel, if you will. I think uh, sure. I've always said you don't find Bigfoot and Bigfoot finds you. And then in 99% of the cases, that's true. Mm-hmm. And once they, and they're very curious about it. So um, that's normally when they're spotted is when they're pretty much focused on humans and whatever activity they're involved in. And, and generally when they do get spotted, when they realize they've been compromised, they just casually turn and walk off into the woods mm-hmm. normally, not always. Yeah. And I know that you are determined to exploit that curiosity. What are some methods that you've come up with? Well, Sam, we use a, a combination of both um, conventional and unconventional techniques. Obviously, you're not going to be able to run these things to ground. They, they can outmaneuver you. They know the area better than you, and they're very agile and fast. Um, I frankly think the world looks pretty flat, regardless of how the many mountains are there. But that is exactly what we try to do, is exploit this curiosity. Um, there's a number of different ways, like I say, conventionally. Um, you, for instance, we've we've tried using different types of bait, which is conventional. Uh, on the unconventional side, we've, we've done things like uh, try to present them with things that will pique their curiosity, but without it, the fear factor, if you will. Simple things like hanging chemical light sticks from... From uh, branches, mm-hmm. you know, there's at night, you know, they're going to see this soft glow and, and and it's not making noise or anything intimidating. They might come check it out. And uh, I've uh, done some experimentation that way as well. In fact, back in 1998, I had put together an expedition and was fortunate enough to have uh, as my my teammates uh, Peter Byrne and Ron Moorhead. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure some of your your listeners are familiar with those names. Oh, yeah. And I came up with this kind of Pavlov's dog kind of um, experiment where I I had brought three different types of bait um, and, and placed them on three stumps not far from each other. On one, I had placed a red apple. The other, I placed a, uh, a, a cob of corn, a yellow corn, and then uh, just a white potato on the third one. And then just before dark, I would um, crack these, uh, activate these light sticks, putting a red one with the apple, a yellow one with the corn, a white one with the potato. And then I would hang some tubular wind chimes, or just a small um, set of chimes that would kind of act as a dinner bell, if you will. Mm-hmm. And my hope was that, you know, over time, like with Pavlov's dog, that we could bring them in just perhaps with the light sticks and take the bait away and then and then eventually take away the light sticks and just and, and try to get see if we can just bring them in with the bells. But by associating those three things, um, you know, we figured we could get some sort of response that way. And, and um, so things like that, I've had friends that have actually taken um, CDs, just blank CDs and hang them with fishing line during the daytime in sunlight, you know, and as they spin in the, in the wind, uh, the reflection of the sun off that, you know, they kind of put off a rainbow of colors. Right. Oh, that's a good so, idea. I mean, yeah, I mean, nobody's got it right yet, Sam. And let's just, 
you know, so we've got to, we got to try different things and I'm working on some other uh, experiments uh, in that regard. Uh, But I think it's inevitable. We will get some concrete evidence and that's really what the conservancy is about. Um, It's, it's the uh, discovery, research, knowledge, collection of data, if you will. And to get to the point where we can get them uh, find find enough evidence to get them scientifically uh, classified, yeah. with the ultimate goal of of uh, affording them some sort of legal protections from from uh, uh, anybody harming or or even killing one, mm-hmm. and that's our ultimate goal. And so we're kind of you know the, as far as discovery, well, they're being discovered quite often. Um, if you, travel in the circles I do it's you almost hear something on a weekly basis and uh, and then and so discovery's happening and it's had it's been happening for thousands of years and I mean if you go back even into Native American lore you find uh, uh, that they've been living symbiotically with them if you will uh, for for just thousands of years we we've we've dated native americans in the, at least in america back to uh, about 19,000 years yeah and we as you know westerners or, or europeans have been here what 300 years so um who do you think's got the most information on them so i i put a lot of credence into the native american lore um and they don't treat them like they, they don't describe them like they would any other animal um in fact they describe them as another tribe of, of, of people. Absolutely. And they refer to them as the old ones or um, the first ones, mm-hmm. uh, which tells you that, you know, they were here before Homo sapiens arrived on the scene. Right. So in that sense, I, I, I put them in the category of, a, of an ancient um, hominid not too unlike uh, Cro-Magnum or Neanderthal, um, but one which has endured um, uh, over the years where others have have uh, died out. Uh, but I, I don't see them really as an ape so much as a primate, which people are considered primate um, if you uh, study biology. So it's it's just uh, we these things are 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 robust enough and have evolved enough to, uh, to, uh, survive all these years. And they're out there. Their numbers are, are, I don't think, uh, very high. And that's our concern with their, uh, with the health of the species. We're hoping to, uh, someday be able to, uh, study them closer and, and, you know, they may be perfectly fine, but I just, I'd rather err on the side of caution when it comes to this species, because, I would just, I would feel horrible if, if uh, through ignorance or, or greed that we just somehow watch yet another species uh, go in, go into extinction, and, and because they're, they're they're wonderful creatures, and I just want to make sure that my children, my grandchildren, my great grandchildren will have, hopefully, as, as at least as good of a chance of witnessing what I did uh, back in '93. Oh, yeah. Uh, It would absolutely be heartbreaking if the Sasquatch met 
you know, the the fate of so many in, extinct animals, that would that would it would be especially heartbreaking just because of what they are and what they represent and how much we can learn from them and how much they have to teach us about ourselves. And, you know, like exactly. Yeah. Like what you've said about the ancient past is such a huge part of it for me personally. It, like I'm trying to understand some things about humanity by kind of comparing and contrasting the Sasquatch. And part of that involves like the, the ancient past, the truly deep past. And, uh, you know, like you said, I mean, it goes back a, a long ways. These interactions go back a long way. As a matter of fact, I mean, squatching goes back to the Epic of Gilgamesh. Right. There was some squatching going on there. The ancient past, the connection to humanity, there, there's so much that we have to learn from the Sasquatch. And it's, it's whatever it is, it's, it's, a truly ancient part of the human story. And I really feel that we need to understand that. And if they went extinct, that would just be heartbreaking for so many reasons. You know, extinction is, is every bit as part of nature as, as uh, evolution, if you will, it's, it's the survival of the fittest. And certainly these are some very fit animals to be sure. But um, we have photographs of, dozens of species of animals that were known to exist that are just gone. And, and it just makes me wonder if there was some way we could have intervened in stopping that. Take, for instance, the, the passenger pigeon. They numbered in the trillions and flew in very large flocks that would almost blot out the sun at one time. And people would shoot them for sport, right? I mean, Back going back as far as um, you know, pre-cell phone telegraph. You know, we had one town would would see them coming and open up on them uh, just for quote unquote sport, and then they would get on the telegraph and and let the next town down the road know that they're on their way, and everybody'd pull out their shotguns, and it 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 was just a really a bloodbath. And when it comes to that particular species, they actually had captured the last known passenger pigeon back in the 1930s. And it was in the, kept it in the Cincinnati Zoo. In fact, they, they named it Martha. And they tried different, you know, crossbreeding with other types of uh, pigeons and what have you, and, and it all failed. And one day, uh, Martha just expired and that race vanished off the face of the earth they you know this first time in history that we knew the exact date the hour the minute of an extinction and and we watched it happen we made it up and we caused it and so you know you look at the tasmanian tiger the dodo bird and others that we've got plenty of photographs of and they're just gone and and you know in so much as we can have some some sort of uh intervention to, to to keep this species uh with us I'd, I'd really like for that to happen you know and you know the thing is sam is it's, it's open season right now there are really no laws at least nothing uh substantial that that prohibits anybody from from killing one of these things and 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 that's what i'm afraid of um you know extinction does not have to come down to the last individual of a particular species in fact there's something called technical extinction which happens when any uh, species gets you know their numbers get below three two or three hundred uh, 
what happens then is you have uh, interbreeding and you have uh, all kinds of uh, illnesses. Uh, it affects their their immune systems, and, and 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 so you don't have to kill the last one. If they if their numbers drop below say two or three hundred, then they're pretty much doomed to extinction. You know, back when Native Americans uh, first came on the scene, there was a whole lot of real estate to go around. As a uh, rule, they they ceded certain areas to these these this species. Just for instance, in, in the Pacific Northwest, the names there's a lot of names. Uh, it's the Aha, Bequas, the Sonicwa, Bigfoot, and Sasquatch, and and Omog, and so forth. But there was one name. There was one name that was common between the tribes that was born of the Chinook, uh, what we call a Chinook jargon. And these are, were Indians that lived up uh, along the Columbia River. And this was a major trading area where, where different tribes would gather together. So they kind of came up with this pig Latin, if you will, uh, words that they can use in the process of trading with one another. And so they, this, this language, uh, this trade jargon, if you will, uh, had a name for Bigfoot at the time, and it was called Skookum. Well, now, if you look um, across the Pacific Northwest, um, Henry Franzoni did a very good uh, research on geographical name places and how they might associate with uh, the Sasquatch. And there were over 40 uh, geographic name places uh, that use the name Skookum. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are aware of Skookum Meadows um, up in Washington, but there's Skookum River, Skookum Creek, Skookum Falls, Skookum Butte, and so on. And it's thought that those, wherever that name was attached to a geographic name place, it was kind of like off limits to humans. It was just a a no-go zone where they, um, like I say, they, ceded it to the um, the Bigfoot. With the onslaught of, of uh, Europeans coming here uh, to, the, to the North America, um, we're encroaching more and more every day into what would be traditional habitat for these things. And, and you know, the kind of things we need to find out. What, what sort of habitats do they need? Uh, what sort of food resources uh, are needed in order to sustain the species? What's what's the caloric intake for one of these guys, one of these big guys in in, in just a, a day? Oh, my gosh. You know? Yeah, I was wondering you know, about this recently. Like, how many calories do they need in a day? Like, an average human, <laughs> an adult human is about 2,000 calories on average. So what? how many yeah. calories does a Sasquatch need, just one adult Sasquatch? Exactly. Uh, well, you know, Dr. Fahrenbach, uh, a primatologist that uh, used to reach research here in the Pacific Northwest, um, he did some calculations based on his knowledge of the uh, mountain gorillas, for instance. And he just, he basically ex- extrapolated data f- uh, for, from the, the mountain gorillas and and he came up with uh, about a 6000 calorie per day per individual hmm. um so you can imagine and there's plenty of food out here i mean i like i can walk around my house and uh, of course i live in the forest uh in the mount hood national forest 
I could walk around in about 15 minutes, come up with about a dozen different things that, that humans that would sustain humans. Mm-hmm. Um, there's plenty around, but I, I, I just think, you know, from the moment they wake up, they've just got to be harvesting and, and gathering food or, or hunting for that matter. Oh, it's a full-time job. And I'm surprised that 6,000 calories was the estimate. That feels a little bit lean to me. I mean, we're talking about like an eight to 10 foot tall being with every inch, you know, the body mass increases exponentially, the muscle mass, bone mass, everything. So I'm sure 6,000, is that all? I mean, I would think double that 12,000. Well, again, that's the kind of thing that we need to find out. Yeah, exactly. Um, for instance, if, 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 if someday one were to be captured, um, we would have to know, you know, what, what do they need? Uh, what do we need to do to, to make sure that they're, um, getting a healthy diet and, and, and again, all those questions, what, you know, what is their lifespan? What, uh, what is their range, the range for just one individual? Again, going back to Dr. Fehrenbach, he, he estimated that a single individual based upon the amount of, uh, food resources, uh, would require a range of 60 square miles mm-hmm. just for one individual. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine if you have a, a clan of these things, if, if that's the right word, then, um, they're going to cover a pretty, pretty huge territory and, uh, probably on a daily basis in this area at any rate, but on the East coast and areas where there are higher concentrations of food sources, they don't need to travel quite as far. And that could possibly account for their greater presence in areas such as Kentucky, Tennessee, you know, all the way up into New York. Uh, how do you feel about that? Like, and, and Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so when I think about their food resources, I do believe them to be omnivorous, um, uh, based on um, eyewitness accounts. Uh, they'll both harvest uh, all kinds of vegetable matter, and and then uh, as far as their their travels concerned, I think a lot of it is is seasonally based, uh, partially due to uh, the weather, um, certainly. It'd be difficult for them to survive if once their water resources are frozen solid, they'd have to come down in elevation. Um, and there again, we have seasonal food sources. Um, the, our salmon runs, for instance, you know, we've we've got summer steelhead, we have fall chinook, winter steelhead, and spring chinook, and these things come through. I mean, you, you can almost set your watch to them, and and you can be sure that they're aware of that pattern as well mm-hmm. um they've been seen harvesting fish uh, in one particular case um a gentleman was um, hiking up this this creek to go fishing and the trail crossed over the creek uh, over this small bridge and he got part way across that bridge and looked upstream and saw what he thought was a bear at, uh, at the, at the bank of the, of the Creek. But as he looked at, it, he's just like, something's not right. And, uh, the thing was rolling rocks over. Um, and then it did something very unusual, something bears can't do. It started palming rocks and lifting them out and mm-hmm. setting them aside. And, uh, as he said, just about time that happened, this thing happened to, uh, 
catch wind of him. Uh, one of the rare cases where they're not aware that they're being seen. Um, and as soon as it saw the, the fisherman, it stood up and walked off into the woods. And when he got his courage up uh, to go where he had seen it, the entire the entire uh, uh, beach was littered with crawdads. Uh, so we know they eat crawdads. So you just add that to the list. Um, but I, I I do think uh, they are opportunists, um, uh, scavengers, as well as predators. Mm-hmm. Um, their ability um, to hurl very large rocks with extreme accuracy is just uh, amazing. Yeah. And um, I had a, a gentleman I was just researching up at the Riley Horse Camp on the west flank of Mount Hood, and uh, he happened to uh, be walking on these trails and had to had to answer the call of nature, if you will, and he took a took a pee, and just about, about the time he finished, this bowling ball sized rock came hurling over the trees and nailed the tree that he was standing next to and it, it hit the tree square on at 70 feet up and then as that boulder came down it busted off a bunch of branches and he, he just he couldn't believe it he said yeah. he said i could hardly lift the thing let alone throw it five feet and yet this thing came hurling over the trees and <sighs> and again with with speed and accuracy and the amount of strength you'd need but i kind of look at that and um uh, he goes, I don't know why it did it, but I said, I think I do because I had it happen to me once, uh, after I had had to go to the bathroom, uh, again, going back to 1998, I had one roar at me from less than 80 feet away. And I mean, we're talking the most ungodly roar, scream, whatever you want to call it. It went on for about three seconds and you just felt it. And it, it came from behind this this hedge. Uh, it didn't show itself, but there's nothing. I'm telling you, I've heard cougars. I've, I've heard bear. There's nothing out there that uh, at least that we know of that could have produced that sound. And, and it, I froze with, with uh, I, I was frozen for like two minutes. I could not move. I, I just literally was waiting to, to die. But again, I believe it was in response to my urinating and I, and I've told him, and I've, I've actually, his was the sixth encounter that was based on some uh, a male urinating. And I think it was uh, reacting uh, like anyone would if somebody was marking their territory. Right. I'm sure that's how, how they, how they uh, perceived it. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. And man, that rock, that's like having a cannon fired at you, you know, a cannonball. Exactly. <laughs> well, and. And uh, I've 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 uh, have another friend up in Alaska that that moors his boat uh, about a hundred feet offshore, this aluminum fishing boat, and he's had a lot of activity. At it's a very remote location. Uh, he would ha- he couldn't bring it in because it was too much of a draft. He'd bring in a he'd go from to shore with an inflatable, mm-hmm. and one night. They heard large splashes out in the bay, and then a couple loud metallic clinks, and went out the next day and found that they had hit the boat twice. And in one case, the rock was inside the boat, and this is a hundred feet offshore. Wow. So, um, but yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, 
and I, what better weapon for hunting if you were to come across a herd of deer, <sighs> you know, to lob a, a, a cannonball into that group. You don't have to kill them. You just have to, to maim them to where you can catch them. And I'm sure that's what they do. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that makes perfect sense. I mean, you, you use what's available to you. They're strong as hell. They can pick up in a, an incredibly heavy rock and throw it with accuracy. I mean, why wouldn't they kill deer that way? Just nail them in the head. I mean, it, you know, any deer of any size would be done for. Yeah. Too easy. Yeah. Um, you know, I just want to go back to something because I, 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 this thought occurred to me while you were talking about extinction. Um, mm -hmm. How ironic would it be if uh, we had to use DNA that we have currently submitted in, in an effort to prove their existence, the same DNA that is so often overlooked? What if we one day had to use that DNA to bring them back from extinction? The very DNA <laughs> <laughs> that was that was so that was in such doubt all along. Well, and and that makes me think. You know, you mentioned them possibly. Um, having um adverse reaction to human diseases mm -hmm. uh, you know could not the opposite be true is it possible that in studying these things we might find out that something in their dna would be useful for us some a cure for aids or cancer or covid or whatever you know um we don't know um their dna has got to be ancient mm -hmm to say the least. And, uh, they may have developed immunities to things that, that afflict humans, and, but you know, so you can go both ways on that. Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent point. And, uh, that, that's part of the hope or one of those many things that's encompassed in all this stuff that we need to learn from them. That's, I mean, whatever we find there, it's going to be extremely fascinating. I mean, whether we find cures for human diseases or not, it's still going to instruct us and tell us so much and help us, you know? So I mean, I just, I, I can't wait. I, I just need to have this solved within my lifetime. And you, you seem to think that, that, that this is, you're encouraged that, official recognition is somewhat imminent well so how does that take place um the there is a body out of stockholm sweden known as the international union of conservation of nature and this is an international group that is tasked with the um with the the job of recognizing not only recognizing new species but uh monitoring the health of other species uh, the iucn has what they call the red list and that's there's nine different stages of of life if you will in terms of the health of you know we think of things like uh, endangered or or threatened but there's actually nine different levels between not threatened whatsoever and extinction. Mm. And uh, so their job is to track these things and to, um, they have the, the uh, fortune of being able to actually describe uh, binomial um, names, you know, like homo sapien or, or, Homo florensis, or or what have you, they they actually make those uh, those calls. Hmm. 
And, you know, it's, what's interesting is in that, that red list, there are a couple of stages that kind of open the door just a little bit to um, the, the Sasquatch question. One of them um, uh, is, is not evaluated, and it just basically means it has not yet been evaluated against the criteria. But there's another one, though, that the, the second one up on the list there is called data deficient. And um, I don't really like to read at all, but I'm just going to put this out here because I think it's important. Uh, data deficient is one in which... Uh, one which has been categorized by the IUCN as offering insufficient information for a proper assessment of the conservation status to be made. This does not necessarily indicate that species has not been extensively studied, but it does indicate that, that little or no information is available for the uh, abundance and distribution of a species. And so maybe there is a category that these things fit in, right? Mm. Yeah. And it's official. And uh, in reading the the Endangered Species Act of 1973, the, they were I've been through it, and it's uh, it's rather boring and dry. But there's there are two statements that jumped out at me as I went through that. Um, it says the authority to list a species as endangered or threatened is not restricted to the species as a recognized uh, as recognized in formal taxonomic terms. That's a mouthful. Yeah. They can, they can, they have the authority to list a species as endangered without it even being formally uh, taxonomically identified. Uh -huh. And it goes on to say the act is intended to authorize listing some entities that are not accorded to the taxonomic rank of species. So we've got that. And, uh, and I think that fits our subject very well. Indeed, and it sounds like you would like to exploit that loophole. Yeah, and and you know people tried before. I I I know both here in the United States and in Canada there have been a couple of attempts by individuals to get them uh, listed, and it's it's a real hard sell with without having a type species or or DNA to to back it up. Right. The conservancy has taken a different approach to this. Um, we're not so much interested, at least initially, in going too direct uh, directly to the Department of the Interior, for instance, which lords over the Forest Service and Fish and Wildlife and, and BLM and all that, uh, the Bureau of Land Management and, and all that, because as others have found out, you're not even going to get a hearing. Um, without more to go on. So the conservancy is going at it kind of backwards, if you will. We uh, are working with several tribes, um, to especially those that, that have reservations. Um, these, are, these are considered nation, uh, individual nations within the United States and Canada, and there's thousands of them, where they have their own autonomy where they make their own rules, and especially when it comes to natural resources and, and wildlife. So because they've had such extensive experience with these things, it's a much easier sell, if you will, to, to get with these tribes, to get with the council and help them um, develop a, an initiative, if you will, that will hold 
authority, at least in so much as the, the boundaries of their reservations. And it's and it's and it's a win-win because not only does it, it it afford protections for any Sasquatch that may be on that reservation, but it also bolsters their own customs and their own traditions and their culture. So we've put together a draft initiative that's kind of a plug-and-play initiative that you can insert. You know, the, we the people of the nation of Omaha, for instance. Um, and, and, and it would read the Omaha nation indigenous, uh, Satanga act. And that's what they call them, uh, in Nebraska is Satanga. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can plug in different tribal names and different names, which they, um, uh, use to describe these creatures. And, and, uh, once we get them on board and we're working with about five different tribes right now once they this catches on i think it'll catch on like wildfire across the country at least in so much as other reservations you know it's kind of a way to you know put a finger in the eye of the white man by just kind of going (laughs) you might not believe it but we know it we recognize this as an ancient indigenous species and we will protect them once you get you know, once we get several hundred tribes on board, then it's going to be a whole lot easier to go to the Department of the Interior and say, look, you are surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands, of tribes that have officially recognized this creature. Now, do your job. Oh, Todd, you have a plan. I, I, I love that. I'm excited to see that. You, you, that. That's so cool. And you know what? I think it's really sweet because it shows how deeply you care about the Sasquatch. And, and and it's a far-sighted plan. I love it. Yeah, it's. I, I think it'll get traction, and and uh, so we'll kind of see where that goes. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, you and I, well, you run into people who say, "Oh, I'll just leave them alone. They're doing fine." Well, again, that's a, it's a romantic notion that's based on zero science. Mm-hmm. And and whether they're they're it's a healthy uh, species or not, again, I I think the best practice is to err on the side of caution until we actually do know the. The health of that species. Speaking of which, 30 years on, what can you say that you feel comfortable in yourself you know about the Sasquatch that you did not know when all of this began? What have you learned that you feel you you are certain that you have learned that this is a truth? Well, I it's it's a learning curve is is very, very large in dealing with this and I've learned a lot and I've had to eat crow a few times. Um, I try to focus on uh, the subject from a biological scientific basis. And, and of course, as you know, there's um, a number of uh, people that, that tend to attribute some paranormal behavior. You know, I, I, I have many friends that fall in that category. I we can agree to disagree, but uh, when you hear certain things so many times, there's always a bit of truth mm-hmm. in in everything. And uh, I'll give you, a, for instance, uh, something that I'd kind of put in what we call the the woo category mm-hmm. uh, is this um, description of eye shine. To me, it didn't make a whole lot of sense just biologically. It seems like it would be counter counterproductive to have, you know, 
light coming out of your eyes, it would ruin it. You think it'd have the opposite effect. You, it would destroy your night vision. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of had, had put that in that category. And, uh, um, let's just say I had a, uh, another epiphany, um, a moment of truth when I went back to the Omaha reservation last October. Uh, I had been talking for years with with some of the native members and and, uh, a couple in particular, and they invited me out there. And based on what they told me, I got on the uh, on the next flight out and I spent a week with them. And I'll be damned (laughs) if uh, they, they took me to a couple of different areas where they had done their research on the reservation. And the the eastern boundary of the Omaha Reservation is the Missouri River. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some very uh, large rolling hills that are heavily timbered with hardwoods, maple, oak, what have you, very thick. Um, and they would take me in there at night. We we would actually we would start. Uh, around midnight in two different locations and my friend would he would call out into the darkness uh, in his language to the apparently Bigfoot it was what he, he said that that he gets uh, very common gets reactions and I'm okay let's go out there you can't see the hand in front of your face we have all the lights off we're not talking eye reflection like you get sometimes with flash photography even on the human eyes you get that red eye reflection off the back of the retina <laughs> he calls out to these out into the woods and all of a sudden within 15 20 seconds a pair of eyes light up mm. like 80 to 100 feet away and i'm like no way no way. And then all of a sudden, a second pair would <laughs> come on, and sometimes three sets of eyes glowing in the dark. And they would move, and they'd blink, and uh, they would change in intensity and even in color uh, at times. Wow. This went on for five nights in a row. I went out Monday through Friday from midnight to sometimes 2.33 in the morning. And without fail, we had this phenomenon of eye shine. And and along with it, uh, a lot of vocalizations, some of which I've heard before, others that were just uh, kind of new to me, but not a, a traditional common animal vocalization. I mean, incredibly powerful and 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 uh, very uh, varied. Um, uh, I remember one in one case, the first night we got out there, we had this uh, what I assumed to be a female call out um in what really sounded like a song and it would go on for five to six seconds and it would change in volume and it would change in tone and it would have very distinct notes to it and and then there would be a 10 second break and she would repeat it again and this she repeated it probably four times within one minute and i have to tell you sam it was it was beautiful there was nothing threatening or intimidating about it. It was absolutely 
wonderful. I wish I would have got it on uh, recorded, but um, that's amazing. Anytime you have repetition like that, uh, there's some meaning to it. You have to admit it's there's it's it's a it's it's lingual. And, you know, I noticed that, too, in, in some of Ron Moorhead's uh, recordings that he did in the in the High Sierras back in the 70s. Uh, one track in particular where there was some sort of a, a banter back and forth between a couple of animals, you would hear the word, Pukwa. Mm. And I'm like, first time I heard it, I go, huh. It almost sounded like a question. It was like, Pukwa? And it, it did this, this one particular uh animal it, it it repeated that five times within just maybe a minute and a half and i'm going ron that's a word <laughs> you don't just make that noise it there's meaning to it and and so with this this female i call her the singer and we heard her two days two nights later she just did one verse if you will but it was exactly like what she did two days earlier two nights earlier that is amazing. And, uh, it's it, yeah. There was certain, there was definitely meaning in it, and it was not threatening whatsoever. It was almost welcoming. And and uh, my friend has established a relationship with these things for over two years. Uh, there's no question they they're familiar with him. They know him, and he's been able to get them to sound off. Uh, and and again, that I that whole eye shine thing. Well, uh. I guess I didn't know everything, you know, <laughs> when I had written, I'd written that off and, you know, you asked me, what's the learning curve? What, what do you know now that you didn't think? Well, I've got another mystery to solve, you know, um, right. I got to find out how they do it. Um, I believe I may have discovered, uh, uh some possible answers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, um, I think that it's, uh, I want to say Discovery Channel or one of these programs uh, just a month or so back came out with a three-part series with the, with the entire series was filmed in night vision. All of it, all of it. And very, uh, very high, high technology in that instead of this green, grainy kind of stuff you see, in mil- what I've used in the military, um, this is full color spectrum and very clear. And they went all over the world filming animals at night with this very sophisticated night vision just to be able to see how they behave when we normally can't see them. And there was one species, because we know bioluminescence happens in nature um, um, quite a bit in, in say, the the marine world, Um, um, photoplankton, uh, and deep sea fish will generate their own light. and on a land, we've got, you know, fireflies and chemically generate light. Uh, certain certain um, amphibians uh, and some plants. So they were, but my thing is, is we're talking about a, a mammal and something very, very close to, to human. Yeah, primate, just, no less. Yeah, so um, they were filming one particular mammal um, not a primate, but in this case, it was a. Uh, they were in Argentina filming a puma, uh, similar to our our mountain lions or cougar that we have here, and they they were filming a mother puma hunting at night with uh, three smaller kittens, if you will. And the eyes, even with the night vision, the eyes were 
almost blindingly bright uh, through the lens of the camera. And they flat out claim that even not looking through that night vision camera, their eyes generated enough light that you could see them in pitch black. A puma. And they mentioned, uh, yeah, there was a there was a certain name, a scientific uh, name for for that process, and and so I'm trying to see if there's somehow we can link that to to our big guys, but uh, it is possible. It's absolutely possible. So um, there again, they were talking about uh, a very ancient uh, animal that is a species that has held on to some sort of a, a, a genetic uh, trait that that may no longer exist in in uh, the hominid species but yet i can't unsee what i saw you know right and, i mean five nights in a row this happened um there was a, a, a one case where uh we were not getting a, a a lot of activity so he said I, I know this place is about four miles away and it's a rough road but we can go check over there so we we went you know way off the beaten path and and no other tracks had gone in before us and we get to this one area where it kind of cleared up and there was a road in front of us so we just turned off all the lights and we sat still and and he calls out to uh in the dark he calls out uh, oh ho gay, which means hello, friends. Then uh, you'd say gigaho, which means come closer. And I'm telling you, Sam, right down the road, set of eyes light up. Like 10 seconds later, I'm like, oh, my God. And it was moving, you know, shifting left and right. And you could see it blink. And, I'm like, and then we, we caught a, a second one trying to outflank us and come around behind us. And I'm just like. I'm getting, I'm excited, but I'm kind of frustrated too. I'm like, there's got to be more. And I, I turned to my friend. I said, have you ever just thought about walking up to him? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He's like, no. <laughs> and I'm like, hold my beer. <laughs> and he's like, what? And I go, just stay here. And I, and I walked, I couldn't even see the road, uh, but I did know it, that those eyes lined up with the direction the car was pointed. And, I just started walking into the night toward these lights, these, these set of eyes. And I got, it was probably 120 feet away. And I got within about 50 feet when they finally turned and went off. Mm. So you, I, he, he, he still talks about that crazy white boy. <laughs> who, who was playing the game of chicken with this Sasquatch and actually won. Well, I just, I didn't know. I knew I had very limited time left and, and I, you know, we could go out there and I'm telling you, we're so, so consistent that I, I, I could almost guarantee you if, if you want to meet me in Omaha city, I could show you that tomorrow. Wow. Tonight. It was just, it was just amazing. That's incredible. At one point. Yeah. And at one point we, Oh, it's, I got to tell you this cause this was, this was uh, really special. I want to say it was Wednesday, so halfway through our our my trip, and uh, again the we weren't getting as much activity as we normally were, and so he looks at me and says, "I'm going to try something." He says, "I haven't done this in a while," and, and this guy's a very um, 
he's a very devout um, uh, Mormon. And he's, he, he said, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray with them because sometimes I get a reaction. So I'm like, whatever, I'll try anything. So he, he calls out to them and he says, hey, I'm going to, I want to pray for you and for your family and for your your safety and your happiness. And I want to speak to our creator. And if you want, please, you know, feel free to come forward and join me. And he bows his head and starts praying. And I kid you not about halfway through this three minute prayer, this one sounds off maybe 50 feet away from us. And it just did this series of whoops. And it did it did it four times, very loud and very close. And just whoop, whoop, whoop. You know, and I wanted to look up, but at the same time, I, I didn't. <laughs> and I waited till he finished. And I looked at him. I goes, that them? And he goes, yeah. I said, I told you, sometimes that works. They they dig it. Yeah. So yeah. So anyway, that whole that whole that was one of the highlights of of my nearly thirty years. Uh, in research uh, that trip and, and i'm looking forward to going back there again soon i should think so wow that is amazing uh, everything about that is amazing so i mean you you actually believe that they are in fact bioluminescing from their eyes correct so it, it not so much they're not projecting light that, that i gotta make that clear uh, because that would be self-defeating what i what I think is that they have special receptors in in the back of their eyes that, like um, early night vision equipment, just tends to suck in any sort of moonlight or zodiac glow that, that's out there and amplifies it. Right. And and uh, gives them the ability to see at night. Uh, and frankly, they they own the night. They tend to be very active at night and. If they have this capability, and I believe they do, then then uh, like I say, they they own the night. Right. It, it'll it would help them in terms of you know hunting and and uh, give them a, a great advantage over pretty much any other animal out there. Absolutely. And uh, you recently mentioned to me, and and you were just talking about it a moment ago as well. This very sophisticated night vision that creates a full color high def image. Is this infrared technology? No, um, it, it's different. I we have uh, both uh, um, FLIR, which uh, infrared uh, scope that will picks it picks up heat, not so much light. Right. Uh, in other words, you you could use it, it functions the same way whether it's dark or light. If there's a body of heat uh, out there. Uh, whether it's night or day, you, you'll pick it up through that scope. This um this new newer technology um is is amazing i happen happened to have just recently purchased um uh, a camera like this and it's unlike any any i've ever seen it, it's better than what i use in the military and it it you could literally make out colors uh almost every color of the rainbow if i had the lights off in it at night in front of my house i would be able to see that my truck is red my bmw is blue the canoe is yellow and it's it's just fascinating it's 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 a game changer this is just amplifying uh any sort of light um 
that's out there. And even when we say, oh, it's pitch black, I can't see the end from my face. There's light out there. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's just not uh, usable light for us, but there is light. And so the night vision equipment we have is uh, very distinctly different than the thermal cameras that one picks up heat, one amplifies light. And, and, uh, but between the two, um, they're very valuable tools for our research. Absolutely. And they, and they film as well. So you could take either snapshots, uh, still shots or, or video right. and with sound even. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. And that's, you know, that's, you talk about how things uh, have changed and over time. Um, what's really, really exciting is how the technology uh, is trickling down and, and with it, the prices. Oh yeah. Uh, so our my my tool chest is completely different than than what it was when I first started many many years ago. Um, uh, we have seismic sensors. Uh, this is a kit of of specialized sensors that actually register vibration in the ground, oh, cool. and will transmit that signal, you know, up to two miles uh, line of sight to a receiver. So whatever's triggering it has no idea that it's doing it, but uh, the the range on these, the ones that I have, and I have a set of four, um, the detection range is, depending on the substrate, is phenomenal. I've I've actually been able to put them in a, of course this is an ideal substrate, but a, but on a football field, I've actually been able to put one on the other end of the field, a hundred yards away, and then stomp really hard and it will trigger at a hundred feet, a hundred yards away. From but you, again, from your foot on the other end of the football yes. field. Ooh, that's yes. cool. Well, I've set them up. I set the four of them up in a series at about 20 to 25 yards apart from each other. And like one will have a single beep. The other will have two. The third one will have three. And the fourth one is kind of a clicker sound. And you could hear them go off in succession as that shock wave traveled across that football field. Mm-hmm. Just fascinating. Yeah. Wow. You're giving me all sorts of ideas, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, you know, they're, they're only as endless as the, as technology develops and, and, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a whole new, new game. Um, we're using drones, um, quite often. We own two of them here at the conservancy and I, I'm planning to retrofit one of them with a thermal camera, mm-hmm. uh, Teledyne just came out with one that's that's pretty cool and it's designed to, to work with one of the drones I have, and so we'll have one that uh, one drone that uh, just uses a standard camera and the other one can use the the thermal camera. Right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you're kind of getting it from all angles, being covering, getting as much coverage as you can. That's cool. And uh, sure. I'm really excited about this monocular that you were talking to me about the other night, uh, the psionics. I want to get my hands on one of those, especially because of the price, you know, part of the, part of what's so discouraging about, you know, trying to get tools for big footing is the price of these things like thermal, thermal imagery or thermal technology is insanely expensive. But uh, if you have an alternative in this, in this monocular that is, only six hundred dollars, which is relatively inexpensive by comparison to a lot of this stuff, then oh, that, yeah. that gives a lot of hope. 
Yeah, the, the base model 600, and they've got a couple of different uh, levels that actually step up from there. And the, the cool thing about it, too, is I've never owned a, a night vision camera that if you that you cannot you can't use them in daylight. You'll you'll destroy the the uh, the sensors. But this one actually has uh, daylight, twilight and night settings to where you can film, use it just like a regular standard video camera during the daylight mm -hmm. and just adjust it as, as the lighting changes. Um, and it's, and it is, um, it has a Bluetooth capability that'll, it will transmit whatever you're seeing in the eyepiece to say an individual standing with you or, or near you, um, that has a tablet, they can see exactly what you're looking at on their tablet. Nice. Yeah. Wow. Pretty cool stuff. That is very cool stuff. I, I'm curious what you would think about my initial Sasquatch encounter, the sighting I had at Whiskey Town Lake near Redding when I was 17 years old. It was a very atypical sort of experience. So I want to just run it by you and see what you have to think about it. Cause you know, like when you're approaching this from just a nuts and bolts, physical, you know, mundane animal point of view, it seems very atypical. So I just, I want to know what you have to, to say about it. Sure. All right, cool. So I was 17. I was hanging out with my friend in Redding at like two o'clock in the morning. We were bored out of our minds. So we went up to a popular beach at Whiskey Town Lake. And I've gone over this before, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about it. Um, we went up to Brandy Creek Beach to see if any of our friends were there. And I pulled up into the parking lot, you know, made plenty of noise. My, my headlights were on. Um, we got out of the car. My friend hang, he stood back behind the tree line, but I went, I went further down the beach past the tree line. And as I did so, I saw this figure squatted at the water's edge. It was twirling something around in the water. As soon as I saw it, I knew that there was something very different about it, but I was telling myself that this was just a person, uh, because, you know, Bigfoot wasn't on my mind in those days. And, um, so I, I go down to it and I, and I, I I'm, I'm kind of checking it out. And then I go back to my friend and I'm like, there's somebody down there and he's kind of sketched out. So he stays back behind the tree line. And then I went back and I got within like 15 feet of this individual and I was standing right behind it. And I called down to it. And I'm like, hey, which, what are you doing? And at that point, he just kind of straightens his back and, and straightens his shoulders. And he looks over his right shoulder at me. And then he just looks right back at the water and the thing he's twirling around in the water. And he goes right back to what he's doing. So, no. <laughs> so in all of this, like he heard me coming. He saw my headlights. He, he saw me and heard me come down to the beach and then go back to my friend and then come back down to him and, be, and come very, very close to him. And he did nothing. He made no effort to get away. In fact, he didn't leave until after I left. So, I, I mean, all of huh. that, none of that makes sense from the point of view of just a mundane animal with, you know, mundane interests and concerns. So I just wanted to know what you have to say about that, what you think of it. Did it make any noise at all? It, as a matter of fact, this is something, this is a, a, a main aspect of the whole thing. Um, when the entire encounter, 
I had a very, very strong sense of sadness coming from this individual. He was actually acting very huh. pouty, uh, like a like a scolded child would, you know, like th- the way he was twirling this thing around in the water. He was acting very sad. And as I approached it, you know, I'm listening to my footfalls in the sand, but I also heard this pathetic mewling sound coming from it, like kind of like, you know, it was it was just kind of wailing and moaning a little bit. Um, huh. yeah, yeah. But that was kind of never stood up. No, never stood up. He just straightened his back, looked over his shoulder at me and then looked right back at the water and went back to twirling this thing around. That's very unusual with the, the Bigfoot when they, like I say, when they feel they've been compromised, they, oh God, they, they saw me and then they get up and walk away normally. But you bring up a good point. You know, we as as humans, we we tend to personify these things, and that's what really makes this species uh, attractive to us, because they're a lot like us. They 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 walk on two legs, and the problem with that is that we also have a tendency to stereotype them. You know, as if you know, you'll hear people say, "Oh, they're very nice. They're very curious. They're not threatening." And in other cases, they are just the opposite. And um, I can't emphasize enough how individual each of these things are. They're as individual as you or I. Right. And if you, both in physiologically as well as uh, mentally and and emotionally, they have their own personalities. And so... I think it's I think it's good that we understand that because uh, I just I, I have to put it in the you know be careful what you ask for category. Don't think I mean any animal can be dangerous, you know. Just like people, I mean, we have very decent people and we have very bad people out there. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got mass murderers out there, um, and that's just the human race. So. And any animal could be dangerous, uh, depending on the circumstances. They, um, you know, even a good person has a bad day, you know. And so we need to keep that in mind. Uh, If there's offspring in the area or if if they're feeding on a kill, uh, I I would caution people to be very careful. Mm -hmm. But I'm really surprised you were able to get that close. Was there any odor associated with it? Nope, no odor. Um, the uh, I, I assume you're getting at like maybe it would it had put off an odor as a defense mechanism to kind of deter me or you know stun me like they do sometimes. Uh, the only thing that really happened is that as it straightened its back and shoulders, the hair kind of bristled on his shoulders a little bit. But I'm not sure if that was just the natural separating of its hair as it erected its posture, or if this was, in fact, a bristling, like a display of, you know, anxiety or, you know, like, hey, don't get too close. I I don't know which of those it was. All I know is that the hair separated on its shoulders. But there was absolutely no overt aggression. There was no odor. There was no nothing. He just looked over his shoulder at me. I saw his face in profile. And then he he just went right back to what he was doing. Like he couldn't care less that I was standing right behind him. Interesting. Because they are known to have put off an odor, and I've smelled them on one occasion, and I'm absolutely certain that that's what I smelled. Uh, during uh, 
And I and I, I think they can control that. I think it's something that they can emit uh, under certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I I was involved in an investigation on a you know wilderness area known as the Roaring River Wilderness. Um, Roaring River is a tributary that goes into the Clackamas drainage, uh, not far from here, maybe 40 miles as the crow flies. And this particular situation that was brought to my attention where this, this gentleman was a amateur rock hound, if you will. And he knew that, that about a mile upstream from the mouth of the river, it's a very rough country. It's very difficult to, to travel into no trails. Um, he had gone to, he knew there was a, a place where the, there was a lava flow that goes into the, into the river. And when summer comes around and the water level drops down, it exposes this lava. And in that lava embedded in the lava is what he called common opal. So he went in there that day along with his full grown um Australian shepherd and proceeds to go down to this lava flow with a metal hammer and a metal chisel and his little collection bag and started chipping out pieces of this opal. And you can imagine if you're in the woods, the sound of metal on metal is a very uh not unnatural sound. And in, in this case it attracted uh a Sasquatch. He <laughs> what's funny is his dog was very upset. His dog was left to wander while he was down on the river. And uh, he, the dog just bristled at something, started growling. It didn't bark at all. It it, it was just growling. So he, it just went on for a while. He decided to go check it out. And he got it where the dog was at. He figured it had a squirrel cornered or something. And he looked in the direction the dog was looking. And he, he said, he didn't even call it a Bigfoot. He said, I saw a gorilla standing on two legs, looking at my dog, and with every 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 time it exhaled, it was grunting, and it was not happy. Uh, <laughs> did not did not. It was, he, he said it was just like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and and at that he he shoved the dog off uh, off this log it was standing on, and they both ran for their lives. And uncharacteristically, this thing took chase. And it was pretty hairy, uh, no pun intended. It is things they're 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 going through four foot tall ferns and jumping over logs and rocks, and this thing is in pursuit. Oh, and uh, uh, he said, at, at any time, this thing could have caught that if it wanted to. It was basically bluff charging them and running them out of its territory. And so myself and another friend met him at the mouth of the river and we hiked back in there and we took photos. We looked for tracks and we made a measurement from where the dog was and where this thing was. They were only 47 feet apart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what's interesting though, we, we did what we could, uh, as far as, uh, in fact, what was really cool was when we got there, here's this chisel and hammer and collection bag laying there on the on the bank so that kind of kind of uh validated his story oh yeah (laughs) but we walked back out the same route we had taken in and we came to this spot 
on our course that we had again the same route we had taken in we got to this this point where this an ungodly odor was suddenly there that wasn't there 30 minutes earlier Mm. it was but it's the physics of it was really bizarre as well because you didn't smell it like if you were coming up on a skunk or something you didn't it didn't you know get stronger and stronger and stronger it was you were either in it or you weren't it was very i don't know it was it was very zonal if you will you could take five steps and you'd be in it and you you could step back five feet and not smell it at all whatever it was was very concentrated in in just in that one area and again it wasn't there 30 minutes earlier but i'm telling you um it smelled like death it smelled like rotting meat like a roadkill or whatever why wasn't it there 30 minutes earlier i don't know but whatever whatever caused that had to have been right there in that area just before we reached that spot right and i think it saw us coming and it just left us a little calling card <laughs> yeah but there was nothing there was nothing there to attribute it to we even did a small grid search of the area to find the source of it and, and we could not find it no sign uh, or, or anything no no um and again we walked back to it and it's still there and it was just it smelled like rancid meat hmm. it was just but i think they use it somewhat as a, a like you say a defensive um message if you will that uh you're getting too close oh yeah they just spritzed it spritzed it around a little bit for you it sounds like yeah well and like you say it doesn't happen in all occasions you were 15 feet away if it would if it if they always smelled that way i would have smelled. you know people would you would have smelled it yeah so Right. That's a fascinating story, though. I, man, 15 feet, that's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. And it got and me. And it changed, I bet it changed your life. <laughs> it did. You know, even before that, though, like my whole life, I've had, you know, I've had incredible experiences that show, that have shown me that the, the nature of reality is much broader than the mainstream view of it. So it, it's not, it wasn't the sort of thing where it just totally just rearranged my worldview because my reality would not have uh, allowed for such a thing. So I, you know, I was open to things and it, it, it didn't just blow me away that way. But I mean, Sasquatch in particular was not really on my radar or in my thoughts but uh, so so yeah once i had this experience it certainly directed my attention in, in, towards sasquatch and and i'm hooked i need to know the answers yeah well it it really it really opens your mind to other possibilities that i would not normally have have considered yeah. and like i say the more i research the more i find out and and the more questions i i come come up with but for me uh it was life changing obviously um it seems like everything uh, leads back to beach uh, bigfoot uh, for me um i i still can't get over how just 25 seconds of my entire adult life at that point was forever changed the the rest of my life completely changed the trajectory uh, you know it's a, it's a moment of fate if if there ever was one yeah, um, and like I say, it's it's set me on a on a path that uh, is 
is still evolving and I will probably spend the rest of my life uh, uh, continuing to do my research and, and try to answer some questions and, and hopefully get closer to the truth and 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 uh, and and again uh, with the long-term goal of, of uh, uh, getting them uh, some sort of protections on the books and and uh, it's it's just been a fascinating trip for me right and I for one, I'm glad that you're out there doing what you're doing. Um, you know, it's, it's something that has to be done. I, I, I think we're being confronted with that. We have to learn about Sasquatch right now and all the unfolding, you know, the, the, the having more questions now than you had before. I mean, that's just part of the whole evolution in consciousness. I think this, I, I see I know you don't like to get way too too way out in the in the woo factor, but you know I see a, a design behind it all. Absolutely, and I'll be right out there with you, stomping around through the woods looking for evidence. As a matter of fact, uh, if you do not object, in a couple of weekends I will be joining you uh, camping at the Bigfoot Trap. That would be fantastic. I I'm actually planning to go down there. I've yet to see it. I've seen photos of it, but it's kind of a I don't know. It's a it's a Bigfoot mecca, if you will. It's something to, you know, check the block, get the T-shirt, say you saw it. But uh, it's it's pretty cool. It's uh, it was built back in the '70s. A guy actually got a permit to build it, and it's very stout. Uh, it's built it with telephone poles on all four corners and very heavy uh, um, beams uh, held together with uh, uh, metal strapping and. And basically, it has a very heavy steel door that if something would go in there, it would trip it and, and you know, in theory, trap it in there. I don't know if the gentleman that built it is even still alive, but it it it's basically become a, uh, so we say a tourist trap. <laughs> yeah. But they've, uh, but uh, for safety reasons, they've welded the door in the open position so nobody gets, you know, guillotined by that thing. But I'll be going down there once I get back from Arkansas, uh, where I'm heading this weekend to address uh, a group at a conference in the Washita Mountains of Arkansas. Yeah. And then that following weekend, I'll be going down there to uh, to check it out with some friends. And yeah, we when you come up, we'll we'll make that a make that a definitely part of the trip. And I'd love to show you around some of our research areas up here uh, around the mountain. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah. Anything you want to show me, I want to see it for sure, Todd. Speaking of Arkansas, uh, why don't you let us know what you're up to? Well, they have a a conference that's held at this this very large farm uh, called the Blue Farm. Uh, They've got zip lines there, I guess, uh, for tourists and um, but they're going to put me up in a, what they call their glamping tent, mm. which from what I hear has got, you know, a full bed and chairs and a refrigerator and everything in it. So I'll be staying there and, and, uh, I'll be addressing them both, uh, Saturday and Sunday. I fly out this Thursday and then this coming spring, I'll, I've already been invited to speak in Nebraska, uh, Ohio and Virginia. So, All right. um, yeah, yeah, and it's great. I love getting out there and meeting new people and 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 comparing notes and getting even more ideas and and seeing different parts of the country and 
So yeah, yeah, it's it's been like I say, it's been a real life changer for me, and uh, I enjoy doing podcasts casts like yours. Um, and uh, I was recently featured on the History Channel's The Unexplained with uh, William Shatner, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll be working. I've got two documentaries we're working on, and I just got uh, the History Channel reached out to me again and want me to get involved in. Another series called History's Greatest Mysteries, and that's uh, narrated by Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, sweet. So that'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. Working on another documentary with Doug Hadjasek, which is Sasquatch Meets Science. Um, And this will be the second in a series, and it'll be a two-hour special. Oh, excellent. And uh, I've got another documentary that's scheduled to come out uh, in January. So should be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Excellent. I look forward to seeing all your future projects. Now, if anybody wants to learn about the American Primate Conservancy or, or if they want to get in touch with you, like maybe to report sightings, uh, what's your contact information and what, website and stuff? Sure. We have a website. It's AmericanPrimate.org, O-R-G. Um, and I, there is a reporting feature on there as well. Um, tells a little bit about our, our mission and, and, uh, future events and, um, our ultimate goal of which is building a, uh, world-class Bigfoot interpretive center somewhere here in the Cascades. And, uh, so we can be reached on that side. Um, my, I can be reached directly by email. Uh, my email address is AmericanPrimate at AOL.com. And I encourage anybody, if you have any questions or if you have an experience you'd like to share, just reach out to me and we treat everything professionally and we take your stories seriously and, and, and we keep them confidential. Oh, excellent. Well, you know, there is always so much to talk about in Bigfoot and especially with someone like you who's been doing this for such a long time and, and has had so many experiences, there's always stuff to talk about. And I want to hear about all of it eventually. <laughs> so I hope I hope you come back on the show really soon. And uh, I look forward to meeting you in person in a couple of weeks. That'll be great. Yeah, and I should mention real quick, we do have some Facebook pages out there that uh, I would encourage people to go to. I have one just strictly under my name, Todd Neese, N-E-I-S-S. Uh, but we have one... Uh, or the Conservancy, and you can just look up American Primate uh, Conservancy. Uh, it's the name of the Facebook page. And we have a third site, which is dedicated to our annual gathering of researchers. Um, we have a, uh, been putting this together for, well, this will be our 15th year. And it's very unique in that it's invitation only, and it's not open to the public. We we It's strictly researchers from around the world. We get to gather together once a year for four days and share our work, network with each other. It's called Beachfoot, Um, kind of a corny name, but it's just based on the fact that we hold these uh, gatherings in the coast range or in some cases right close to the beach. And so it just kind of stuck. And it's really just kind of taken on a life of its own. We've had we've had researchers come in from as far away as Australia, England, Russia, New Zealand, and all across the U.S. Uh, and Canada. 
So I would encourage them, your, your listeners to go to the Beachwood Facebook page and just browse through the, the gallery, uh, the photo gallery. And pretty much anyone who's, everyone who's anyone in, in Bigfooting has been there at one time or another. Right. And uh, we like to get, uh, it's just, it was just a brainchild of mine back in, in 2008. I thought, God, all these amazing people I've met, what would it be like to get them all together at once? And, and it just worked out that way. So, um, oh, yeah. and there is also on YouTube real quick. Um, we've, uh, a friend of mine did a, uh, 10 year anniversary documentary about Beachfoot and did an amazing job putting it together. And, uh, you can find that out there as well as, uh, also on YouTube, we did a, uh, expedition in Canada, which we <clears throat> dubbed Operation Sea Monkey. And it was a very unique, um, uh, approach to Bigfooting from a maritime, uh, platform. We took a 50 foot trawler and went, uh, out of, um, Campbell River, uh, which is uh, on the bank on Vancouver Island, and we covered about 140 miles in six days, and anchored off these remote islands uh, known as the Broughton Archipelago. And we're putting together a documentary on that. There is a trailer out there though that's about four minutes long that will give you kind of an idea of what we're up to. We had a, a great team, and uh, it was an amazing, an amazing adventure. Yeah, I look forward to uh, all things upcoming pertaining to Operation Sea Monkey. I've uh, <laughs> I've, I've had my eye on that. I'm, I'm waiting for the developments, as as I think we all are. Everybody who's interested in Bigfoot, it's been great having you on the show. And uh, like I said, there's always stuff to talk about. So I re I hope you come back really soon, and uh, I'll be seeing you soon. So Todd, Neese, I would like that. Yeah, I would too. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being on Type 471. If you'd like to share your experiences with The Extraordinary with me, email me at type471podcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with me across social media. Look for Type 471 Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Look for Type 471 Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and check out the Type 471 Podcast YouTube channel. The YouTube videos contain all media associated with each episode. Be sure to like and subscribe. I'm Sam Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Type 471.